0: occurred to me that I just can't sit idly by and, and let the world burn. This is the problem of our generation, of our century, that has to be addressed. And everything else is going to be secondary. Everything will eventually be dominated by the climate change issue, in my opinion.
1: From New York University's Center for Sustainable Business, this is The Sustainability Project podcast featuring peer-to-peer conversations with Stern alumni on their role in advancing the most pressing environmental and social issues of our time. We talk about challenges, opportunities, what drives them, and how they view the world. I'm your host, Tim Quinn, Stern Class of 2016. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Rick Mayo-Smith, Stern Class of 1986. Rick invests in private equity and startups with a sustainable focus in Asia and the United States. Prior to becoming an impact investor, Rick was an entrepreneur, fund manager, and real estate developer for 30 years in Asia. He's the co-founder of Indochina Capital, a fund management firm that invests in real estate, private equity, and public markets. He's a member of the NYU Stern Board of Overseers. Rick, thanks for joining the program. Good to be here. Why don't we start out, for the listeners who may be unfamiliar, take a step back and explain a bit about what you're doing professionally these days and your path to getting there.
0: After I graduated from Stern and in 1986, I headed out to Asia and I was there for 35 years. And the last 15 years, I built my own fund management company that focused on real estate and investing in stocks and private equity which I then sold to a Japanese investor and retired. But however, and moved to Singapore. And in Singapore, as my children were finishing high school, they had fires in, in Indonesia. And similar to what's just recently happened in California, we were homebound. It was horrible air and smoky. And and it occurred to me that I just can't sit idly by and, and let the world burn. And so I started to look at ways to use investments to tackle climate change. And so that led me over a number of years to the conclusion that there has to be a price on carbon emissions if we're going to redirect capitalism. That led me in turn to meeting up with a gentleman named Aaron Bloomgarten, a lecturer at Columbia University in Sustainable Finance, who has uh, a lot of experience in carbon markets. And so he and I formed this company called Climate Finance, and we decided to go ahead and work together to try to find solutions using the marketplace. This led, in turn, to the idea of forming an ETF, exchange-traded fund, puts a global price on carbon emissions, and there we took the three largest carbon emission markets: Europe, California and the northeast of the United States. Well and I managed to convince. Secretary of State Kerry, John Kerry, who signed the Paris Accords, to join my advisory board. And so we have a prestigious advisory board. We have launched it now on so people can buy and hedge climate change risk. Taking a step back, before we speak to your current role, you
1: said something really interesting, which was you couldn't just sit idly and watch the world burn. Do you think that For those who take action on climate, it's important to have a firsthand experience before devoting at least part of their life to the solution?
0: Well, I think it is a call to action. When you start to experience it firsthand, it does force you to try to take action. And then I think people who are forward thinking and are able to look ahead, they realize this is the problem of our generation, of our century, that has to be addressed. And everything else is going to be secondary because it's only going to get worse and it will affect everything from migration to racism to everything else will eventually be dominated by the climate change issue, in my opinion. Global climate change poses a real and present danger of environmental destruction and human dislocation on a scale that we've never seen.
1: You spent 35 years in Asia, you mentioned. How would you contrast the way countries in Asia approach, and maybe there you can't categorize them with one fell swoop, but how would you contrast the way climate change is addressed in Asia opposed to, say, Europe and the United States?
0: Well, I think they were slow to recognize the issue over the last 20 years. They were so busy building up their quality of life, and they were not has advanced, at least economically. Now I I find that they're really, especially in China, they're really paying attention to this and are actually moving faster than America. Europe has always been the leader on this. The United States was, but has fallen behind with the current administration and hopefully will come back and and start being a a leader again in this area. In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens.
1: The United States will withdraw
0: from the Paris Climate Accord. I think Asia, it depends. There's so many different countries in Asia, so it's hard to say. I think there's a much greater awareness of climate change and that it's a huge issue than there was 10 years ago for example. I mean, I think everybody in Asia has heard the term climate change now. 10 years ago, they might ask you, what is that?
1: So you and your company and your colleagues are affecting change through the financial markets. Historically, I guess, personally, I've, I've thought of government as playing a leading role. And you mentioned that in recent years, perhaps the United States has taken a step back. Going forward, do you see real progress being driven through markets or the public sector or perhaps through consumers?
0: I think all three are going to have to make an effort and play a role. There's just no way we can affect the change that's necessary. It has to be a mindset change. It has to be technology. It has to be government. It has to be the private sector. So it's going to be all cylinders if we're going to solve this problem. And, I, and I, you know, I do see Some change is happening, probably not fast enough, but gathering speed. So I think that once things start to change, they can pick up the pace and we'll see maybe a lot of uh, change happening in our next 10 years. So it's it's the critical 10 years. There's no doubt about that. And we're already past the point of no return. So it's gonna be a mitigating effect if we pay attention to it now. Humans emit about 40 billion tons of CO2 greenhouse gases every year. Earth naturally can absorb 20 billion. So we're now putting into the atmosphere 20 billion tons of carbon the atmosphere can't handle. If we can get that to even carbon neutral, we'll still have a surplus of carbon in the atmosphere, which then causes a lot of this global warming. So everybody's going to have to chip in and make this work. Typically,
1: I, at least I always imagine that financial markets are reading risks perhaps before others do. Do you think with respect to climate change that they've also been ahead of
0: the curve or are they just catching up now? I think they're just catching up now. I mean, I just talked to my uh, financial advisor. She was saying they just had a big risk meeting and say, how are we going to price climate change? How are we going to measure the risk? We don't even have a price on carbon. So that was, in some ways, amusing to my ear that at least they're starting to think about a price for carbon. And that's what we're trying to do with our ETF is create a benchmark that people can refer to and start integrating it into all their financial decisions, whether it's accounting, insurance, everything else. Cost of doing business, they have to anticipate that they're gonna be charged or the price of carbon will be integrated into their financial plans. So that's what we're trying to do by creating this benchmark. There can be a lack of consensus around certain
1: standards and sustainability. Do you find, though, that when assessing climate risk, there's a consensus
0: on what matters and what may matter less? I think that's an issue that has to be addressed, and how to make measurements and to measure risks and what is ESG and everything else along, around that. I think everybody's moving towards that direction. The big four accounting firms have decided to come up with an ESG standard they can all agree on, which will then be incorporated into every single company's accounts. It'll become the global standard. So that's one although it's a hindrance right now and everybody's claiming their ESG when they may not be. For example, there's a ETF and sale that says it's carbon friendly or neutral or whatever and they still have like BP in there. So you gotta be careful. Some of these funds and ETFs and financial instruments or investors are saying they're green, but they're not, they're greenwashing. But I think people are getting more sensitive to that and they really try to measure the output. And I think uh, the Center for Sustainable Business with its rosy return on sustainable investment is becoming a standard. We're making big strides in that regard. I agree. It's almost exponential, at least
1: in terms of awareness and some of the action that's being taken, or at least maybe that's my hope. When I'm thinking about the risk management side of things and I consider certain financial institutions that have had nearly, you know, maybe a hundred years of trying to analyze financial risks. I wonder how does that translate to assessing the physical risks of climate change? have you seen, and I've started to notice this here and there, the hiring
0: of scientists at say banks or asset managers? I think people are paying attention to it. And I think there's a huge potential for an MBA candidate to major in sustainable investing. And I think they're going to be in huge demand over the next five to 10 years, starting now. And so this knowledge that we're creating and generating at Center for Sustainable Business, for example. And also, I think if you put a price on something, then it can be incorporated into all those financial tools that have been established in the system. And so I do think that while capitalism and the Industrial Revolution was the cause of this pollution, I do think they can now be the solution if they just redirect the incentives. So it's, it's going to have to be, and if it's priced, and the price of carbon to me is, is the reason why I focus on that, I think is the most important thing. And that, frankly, is what encouraged Secretary of State Kerry to come on board. He said, is the one thing that was missing from the Paris Accord. None of the governments could agree on the price of what should be carbon price for a ton of emissions. And so he said in this Bloomberg article about our ETF that we're leapfrogging governments and going directly to the market. So I think the market is going to be the main driver of the change. And so that's why we're excited about what we're doing.
1: Certainly sounds exciting. And for those who may not be familiar, why don't we take a step back and explain a bit about carbon and its impact on the environment? What are some of the main emitters of carbon pollution and maybe some that would surprise us?
0: There's a lot of carbon emissions going on all over our system. The biggest is probably the power plants and the shipping and the airline industry and and energy. Primarily, carbon emissions is related to energy. So whether it's cars, planes, ships, power plants, big, big industrial plants like metal. I think the biggest culprit is the coal-fired power plant. Those are the big emitters, and then on a daily basis, we all have our own carbon footprint, which we can measure, and the U.S. is very high, unfortunately, because we drive a lot and fly a lot. These are two big culprits. Our carbon footprint ranges from 9 to 20 tons per person, while it's much lower in developing countries where they don't have so much opportunity to consume. But then you have other countries like Europe is half of us, so they're just much more careful about how they consume. So I think it's a lifestyle aspect that you have to look at, as well as converting from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And the the commitment of California for particular to go by 2035 to all electric, these kind of exciting initiatives are going to be really important to achieve carbon neutrality.
1: The uh, AFL-CIO, representing 12.5 million workers, 55 different unions, has slammed the Green New Deal. In a letter, they say that a Green New Deal makes promises that are not achievable or realistic. They went on to say, we will not accept proposals that could cause immediate harm to millions of our members and their families. One thing that's talked a lot about is some of the downside of transitioning the economy perhaps too quickly in one direction to a more renewable future. Do you think that there's a danger in that, that we transition too quickly to more of a clean economy and there's a segment of the the workforce that perhaps is left out of the transition?
0: I don't think so. I think it's already... Proven. I mean, I, you do need some government support, like the Green New Deal, I think would support retraining and you convert the the Rust Belt to the Green Belt. And, and I think that would be something that the government could really support. And that's what they're doing in China and that's what they're doing in Europe. So I don't think it's something that's, it's, I think it's something very positive. We all got to experience what clean air was like during the middle when the first COVID hit and the skies were blue and the air was clean and the birds were singing, it was like a whole new world. I think it's a very positive, optimistic way to, to go. So it's just another revolution that's, uh, that's taking place. So well, there's going to be some winners and losers, there's no doubt, but I think there are going to be a lot more winners than losers. So you just got to bite the bullet and charge ahead, in my opinion.
1: I agree. I think it'll take leadership to proclaim that for sure. You mentioned the global pandemic. I remember when it first set in, there was some thought or some concern that everyone's focus on COVID-19 may take away from prioritizing climate change and other issues that would fall within the ESG realm. But what I understand is it actually had the opposite effect. Talk a little bit about that and how you've seen the impact of COVID-19 on the prioritization of handling climate change.
0: Well, in the investment world, definitely, they thought it would slow down investments in ESG, but in fact, it's increased in that Everybody, including myself, is trying to create a not carbon neutral portfolio and ESG impact portfolio. So it's been really exciting to see this happen. I mean, I've been sort of plugging away at it for about five years. And in the last one or two years, it's been exponential. When considering climate change,
1: it's hard not to get very concerned, even fearful. What in your work and your experience has made you optimistic about the fight against climate change?
0: Well, first of all, I just feel it's a waste of time to get all depressed. So I've managed to control my mind, I suppose, and just, you know, do your eight hours or five hours or whatever you're putting into your, to your efforts, you know, and, and, uh, and then try to enjoy life for the rest of the time. So it's mentally, I think the only way to deal with it, because if you get depressed, it gets just a rabbit hole of depression. Right. So, and you try to live a life that's, you know, less consumption. And for example, I've, I I split my time between Asia and America. And I've, thanks to COVID, but also personally, I've tried to change my lifestyle. I used to fly all over the place all the time and for meetings and this and that. And so now I'm just flying to Asia once a year, because my wife is from Vietnam. And so we go back there, we have a home there. So we go back. So we just cut it back down to, to, uh, you know, one trip a year, which is my biggest footprint is flying to Asia. So um, I think it's just that's the way you have to deal with it. You have to look at your lifestyle and try to change it. You got to work on what you think is important. And the rest of the time, you know, don't let it get you down.
1: What's on the horizon? And what do you have planned, I guess, for the upcoming years?
0: Well, this is a big project that's just started, so uh, it's the end of the beginning. Now we have to go out and convince people to put some money into this. I mean, we have to make money for our investors in our company, as well as for the ETF. I mean, the price of carbon, when we listed it, this was the weighted average between these three big markets that actually legally buy and sell carbon credits. Carbon allowances, we've got to get some money in there because without the money in there, it doesn't really become the benchmark that people refer to. It's just a small little ETF somewhere. So if you get 100 to 500 million into this ETF, people will say, well, there is, when everyone says, well, what's the price of carbon, they're going to look at the New York Stock Exchange listed ETF saying, well, that's what that's trading at. And then we're probably going to be bringing China on. That's going to be a huge, that will double the size of the carbon trading market. And so these are the. that the ambitions that we have for our company is to, to grow this ETF to make it really the global benchmark. And I think a lot of transition will take place once the world has something to refer to, because right now the price of carbon goes from $1 for a credit in India at a, some kind of plantation to $130 tax in Sweden, where they're very strict on their carbon emissions. So we're trying to create something that people can refer to and, and then make decisions from that. So we're going to just keep working on building our business there. And then later we might do some other things, in particular, you know, my partner is very strong in forestry and protecting forests. So you basically pay people to keep their forests and they get carbon credits that they, people pay and they want to offset their carbon footprint. They pay someone to keep the forest in place, the forest being the natural carbon sink, the the planet has. So they're being chopped down, they're being burned. They're also a cause right now, half the forests, the tropical forests are actually being burned and causing more carbon emissions while they should be kept and suck up all the carbon. So that's a whole nother subject. And that would be the area we would look at next. Rick, I'm sure a lot of people listening to you speak would love to work at a company
1: like yours or at least do this type of work. When you're out there recruiting and looking for new team members, what type of person and what type of background do you look for?
0: We are starting to interview people right now because we are growing. We do need some more people with us. A combination of passion for this type of work as well as not afraid to get into the details and, and analysis and the research And then finally, we need people who don't mind going out and marketing and working hard in terms of raising capital with these ESG investors. I mean, the wind is behind our back, so it's not that difficult, but anything new like this takes a lot of convincing. So a combination of those passion, attention to detail, not afraid to marketing, or that could be in three different people, who knows, down the road. We're still a startup. We've only been around for two years, And it's only a few of us on board right now, all most of us volunteering our time. It could be a huge opportunity one or two years down the road, but you know, we're, we're, we're actually just we're, we're interviewing with people from Stern right now. Rick, it was so good talking to you today and it'll be exciting to see
1: uh, how your company does going forward and how it changes the conversation and the ways people invest.
0: Thank you very much for, for the time.
1: To learn more about RIC and Climate Finance Partners, you can visit climatefinancepartners.com. The Sustainability Project is hosted and edited by me, Tim Quinn, and sponsored by the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Visit their website, stern.nyu.edu sustainability, or find them on LinkedIn or Twitter at NYU Stern CSB. We hope you join us for our next conversation as we sit down with more Stern alums to hear about their stories in ESG and sustainability.